Let's pray together. God, thank you for today. Father, we're so grateful that even in the midst of storms that you are our peace. Father, we pray that we continue to look to you in those times. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the message you give to us. How to deal with families and marriages and relationships. Be with us, Father, in the next few moments together. I pray that you speak through me. I pray that my lips are your lips. My heart is your heart, Father, and that we are not just hearers of the word, but we are doers of it. Thanks for today in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jared. I'm the associate pastor here at Christ Church. Uh, it's great to be with you here today as we are, are starting uh, in our new series called The Ideal Family. The Ideal Family. You know, one of the misconceptions we have about today in our society, especially in our churches, is that everything is ideal, that uh, we have wonderful marriages, no conflict, our children behave perfectly, we, we spend our time well, but that's in reality is not the case. Uh, well, this series that we're going to look at over the next uh, few weeks really talks about how, to, how from a biblical perspective we need to have found good foundational marriages, how to, how to deal with conflict in our families in a, in a biblical way, what the Bible says about how, to, how we deal with our parents and children. Then as we move into, into next month, we're going to be in our stewardship series where we talk about how to deal with our finances and our money. But... We need to begin by, by looking at our marriages first. Why? Because there's no, there's no point in talking about conflict and, and time, time management in our families and, and how we deal with our children and parents and, and, and finances if we don't get our marriages right from the get-go, if our marriages aren't built on the foundation the way God designed them to be. And if you're single in here, I ask that you listen to this as well because there may be a time where you enter into a marriage as well. And we need to understand the biblical basis for what God set up to be in the first place. This passage in Ephesians 5 is one of the most clear, clearest passages to speak about marriages. It's also one of the most misinterpreted and misunderstood passages about marriages. That's, that's why marriages are failing and collapsing all over the place, because they don't go to the foundation of the way God set them up. That's why we've titled this sermon, Lost in Translation. Because marriages, husbands and wives, don't understand this passage, therefore aren't communicating well in their marriages. I uh, do some counseling here. Pastor Barry does quite a bit of the counseling here. Elizabeth Barry uh, does uh, some as well. We have a wonderful pastoral life team who does the counseling. And, and we deal with marriages all the time. And there's a lot of misconceptions, especially when it comes to this passage. You know, wives feel, because of this passage, when they hear the word submit, that, that they're, they're, they're inferior to their husband. Or maybe that they can't express their thoughts and concerns. Maybe there's, there's marriages in here, wives in here, who, who, whose husband isn't, isn't taking that spiritual head, and they, head of the household, and they said, there's no way I'm submitting to that. I'm going to be miserable the rest of my life. Husbands misinterpret this passage all the time, too. They think, well, I'm the head, so I can say whatever I want. I can treat my wife any way I choose. I can be as stubborn as I want. See, this passage is where lost in translation. We'd understand it so our marriages aren't set up the way they should be. 
What's interesting about this passage, it's not, it's not that we, we don't want to understand this passage. It's because of the fall that we have a hard time comprehending this passage. Let me say that again. It's not that we don't want to understand this passage. It's because of the fall we have a hard time comprehending this passage. You see, before the fall, Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony. God set up the marriage perfectly. When Adam saw Eve, he immediately recognized her as his perfect companion. That's why he said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He saw no blemishes, no shortcomings, because his attitude and her character were absolutely pure. There was nothing to criticize in Eve because there was no critical spirit in Adam. They were naked, but they weren't ashamed because there was no evil or perverse thought. Those selfishness has entered the marriage. Man was created first, was given headship over the woman, but the original relationship was so pure that his headship over her was his manifestation of his pure and consuming love for her. And her submission of him was out of her pure and consuming love for him. There was no selfishness, no self-will married in the relationship. Eve each lived in perfect fulfillment. But you see, the fall itself was a perversion of marital roles. You see, when Eve sinned, when she took the fruit, she didn't sin just in disobeying God's command. She sinned because she was acting independently and failed to consult with her husband. She didn't respect him. Adam sinned not only in disobeying God by taking the fruit, but he failed to exercise his, his, his authority to protect his wife, to love her in the way God intended her to do, to protect her from that. Marriages are therefore corrupted. Roles are reversed, and man and woman are going contrary to what God had planned. You see, Eve took took initiative, and Adam did nothing. God created the man first and gave him responsibility over, over over those to lead and feed those under his care. The woman was created when, from the man was, was made to be the receiver of that. The question is, is who, who's leading who in this account now? Eve's leaving, leading Adam. Something's wrong with this picture. And ever since then, roles have been reversed in marriages. There's a natural drive. Sin nature entered into the marriage. And there's selfishness. There's selfishness. Each thinking how marriage should be done in your own way. The problem is, as Galatians already talks, uh, talks to us about, is that the flesh is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit is what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another. So as a result, the man loves the woman the way he thinks he should love her. He's not taking the spiritual head. And the natural drive of the woman is to act independently of the man. Ironically, however, the way God created the woman, they long to be responders for their husband to take action. So as a result, women end up with bitter tastes in their mouths because their man isn't, isn't taking their spiritual head. They resent them. They blame them. The man is left with the same kind of bitterness and anger because he desperately wants to be respected by his, by his wife and he doesn't know how to really truly love her. That's why the book, there's a very famous book out, Love and Respect. We studied that here a few years ago. Love and Respect. That ever since then, we've been trying to gain that back, to go back to the way that marriages were meant to be before sin entered in. So what do we do? We have to set them right. We have to set them right to have the ideal marriage that God wants us to have, and we can have an ideal marriage. 
As we talk about this passage in Ephesians, I'm going to talk to the women in the room and then to the men. And it's easy, I think, at this point where you say, yes, finally, Jared, really lay into my wife on this one. Let her know how, how she's mistreating me, how she's not respecting me. Or the, the women to say, yes, finally, Jared, someone to really give it to my husband. Honey, I know this will hurt, but this is for your own good. The key is, as we look at this passage, is what do we do in our marriages? What do we need to bring? What kind of attitudes do we need to have? So for the wife, as we've already read, for the wife, what is the manner, motive, and model of submission? Three points. The manner, the motive, and the model for submission. Verse 22, if you have your Bibles there, we're in Ephesians. Verse 22 it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So what is the manner of submission? Is as to the Lord. Everything we do is in obedience to the Lord. It should be done to, to the glory of him, to please him. A wife submits, who submits to her husband also submits to the Lord. But there's more than that. If you have some versions in their Bible, you'll see that submit or be subject to is in italics. Because it wasn't originally in there in the text. It's a carryover from verse 21, which is why we read verse 21. Submit to one another out of mutual reference for Christ. Mutual submission. Mutual submission. Wives are submitting to husbands. Husbands are also submitting to their wives. As to the Lord. This is the most fundamental thing. If you get anything out of this message, this is the most fundamental thing. It's selflessness in a marriage. Our counseling appointments here at the church would be a lot shorter if we just sat people down and say, stop being so selfish, now go. If people just held to that, if there was a mutual submission, things would be a lot better. Why? Because mutual submission virtually eliminates divorce. And this is the difficult part of text uh, for Christians, is that they submit to one another. We live in a society where... Uh, Submission is, 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 is looked upon as a, as a bad thing. What you have to understand is the word submit comes from the word hippotasso, which means to, to give up one's rights in a voluntary way. So it's not like a child where they're giving up their rights in a voluntary way. My children, I, they're not giving up their rights voluntarily to me. They need to do what I tell them to do. It's different in this passage. We're giving up our rights in a voluntary way way. It's a voluntary response to God's will and giving up one's independent rights to others, believers in general, and to ordered, ordained authority. The text also doesn't tell wives to obey everything that their husbands say. The text doesn't give any license for for attempt for forceful submission. Christ patterned this self-giving love but it doesn't mean that we can never seek justice for ourselves. He didn't he didn't acquiesce to Herod or the Pharisees. Paul didn't give in to the Galatians or the Corinthians either. That's why he says in Galatians 2.5, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain. So what do we do as, as women or wives when our husbands are doing, being contrary to the word, when they aren't living righteously? Peter addresses this. Peter addresses this in 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, if you have your Bibles. According to 1 Peter 3, the number one means of influencing such a husband is not through tearful, tearful, uh, pleading logic or, or constant reminders. It's through the power of submission. 
First Peter 3 says, verse 1 says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence in your lives. Peter's saying that a man may be won over by the, by the actions of their wives. When they obey God's teaching, when they model what should happen in a marriage, they do so because they trust God. See, the fundamental issue in relation to submission really comes down to the willingness to trust God, to place yourself under his authority. When we place ourselves under the spiritual covering authorities God has in our lives, he protects us. This goes, for, this goes beyond marriages, doesn't it? It goes to places that work, our workplaces, the bosses over us, our supervisors, people in government. Proverbs 21 one says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. So our willingness to place ourselves under God-ordained authority is, is the, really the greatest evidence of how big we believe God is. So the question for you this morning is, do you really believe that God is bigger than any authority in your life? Do you believe that he has the authority to change that person's heart? Do you believe he's big enough to protect you? You believe that he knows what's best for us. He asks us to do things. And he's going to protect us and guide us. It was Susan Hunt, a Christian author, who wrote in The True Woman, I can't give logical arguments for submission. Submission is not about logic. It's about love. Jesus loved us so much that he voluntarily submitted to death on a cross. His command is that wives are to submit to their husband. It's a gift that we voluntarily give to the man we vowed to love in obedience to the Savior we love. God said that man needs a helper. The true woman celebrates this calling, becomes affirming rather than adversarial, compassionate rather than controlling, a partner rather than a protagonist. The true woman is not afraid to place herself in a position of submission. She does not have to grasp. She does not have to control. Her fear dissolves in the light of God's covenant promise to her to God and to be and live within her. That's why Nancy DeMoss says, submission is simply a demonstration of the confidence in the sovereign power of the Lord. Submission is a reflection of redemption. That's the manner of submission. What's the motive of submission? The motive of submission is found in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of this church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Many have assumed that the, that the word head, kaphale, which they, they translate it as boss. That's what many people would translate that as, head, boss. It actually means to have responsibility for. To have responsibility for. So men, do you have responsibilities for your wives, for your family? Jesus redefined greatness as being a servant to them. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you, it says in Matthew, you must be your servants, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So now the priority is placed in the husband. You're not the boss, but you have a responsibility. But it also means that your wife is not your servant either. So that's the motive. What's the model? What's the model for submission? It's found in verse 23 and 24. It says, husband's the head of the wife. He's the head of the church, his body, of which he is a savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
The model of submission is Christ himself who gave himself up voluntarily as a supreme act of submission. That's the model. That's the model we look to, that we have, women have. So the question I have for you, women, wives in this room, is how are you doing with, with submitting and being a helpmate to your husbands? How are you doing with winning them over with your actions to the word, to live righteously? How are you doing with that? Are you trusting God in every aspect of your life? But the bigger question is, is there a result of that? Does your communication to your husband reflect that to them? Is there evidence of that? Jesus Christ is the, is the divine model and the husband who should provide for her, protect her, love her, and lead their families as a spiritual household. Notice the rest of the passage is not about the husband's authority, but the, but the duty to submit to his wife through his love for her. So verses 25 to 31 explains the manner of that love. Verses 32 to 33 explains, reveals the motive of that love. So for the men, what's the manner of love for your wife? For husbands, what is the manner of your love for your wife? The first one is that it's sacrificial. Sacrificial. Verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, we live in a world today where, where love is, is, an, is, uh, is objective. We love things because of the way they look or the way they make us feel or because of prestige or power. The problem is, is once those things go away, so does love. That's why people enter into marriage and they fail all the time because they're entering into it the wrong way. They love what that person can do for them, not what they can do for them. Christ gave himself up for us not because we needed it, not because we deserved it. A husband is not committed to, his, to love his wife based on what she is or is not. He's commanded to love her because it's God's will for him to do so. Jesus did not wash the disciples' feet because they deserved it. He loved them so much that he sought to serve them. That's why he washed their feet. Love does whatever needs to be done. It doesn't count cost. doesn't look at merit. It reaches help. It reaches out, it leads, as it encourages. Christ gave himself up. He went to the cross. He died. So a man should give up his life if necessary. Isn't it interesting that if a loving husband is willing to give up his life for his wife, how much more so should he be able to give up lesser sacrifices for her? He puts his own desires and opinions aside. His own welfare based to meet her needs out of love. It's selfless. That's why J.R. Miller, pastor here, Pennsylvania, who lived in the early 1900s, says love is always ready to deny itself, to give, to sacrifice. Just in the measure of its sincerity and intensity. Perfect love is perfect self-forgetfulness. Hence, where there is love in a home, unselfishness is the law. Each forgets self and lives for others. So the first one is the manner of love is sacrificial. The second one is the manner of love for husband is that it's purifying, purifying. Verses 26 to 27. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present herself, himself, her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. It's purifying. You see, love only wants best for those 
We love. And I can't bear for those things to be corrupted or misled in any way. Husband's love for his, his wife, he seeks to purify her. He seeks to protect the family from, from any contamination. Protect the holy and the virtue and the purity of the family. To say, hey, that's wrong. That's not right. That's only going to leave us with a stain, with a blemish. He'll never introduce, induce her to do something which is unwise or wrong. That's what Adam failed to do. That's what Adam failed to do. He should recognize that that's not right. And we shouldn't do that. That's going to draw us away from God, not move us toward it. As men, as husbands, we need to be doing that. We need to know the word. We need to know what's right. We need to know what those things are going to drive us away from God, what's going to push our wives and our family away from God, and be able to stand up and say, you know what, no, that's not right. Because this love I have for you is a purifying love. Husbands, are you doing that? Your activities, the things you do, how you spend your money, how you spend your time. What is that saying to your wives? What's that saying to your family? We need to do that. We need to protect them. It's a purifying love. So it's sacrificial. It's purifying. The manner of love is also caring. It's also caring. Verses 28 through 30. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. As Christians, we understand that our bodies are the temple. We care for them. We feed them right. We give them good things. Husbands, men, when we protect our bodies, when we care for our bodies, we have a good self, self-worth, a self-being. We need to do that for our wives as well. We need to care for them. We need to nurture them. We need to give them what they need. Is it, is it healthy food? No, I'm talking about encouragement. I'm talking about strength. We supply their needs. We give them warmth, comfort, protection, security. It's a caring love just like we do with our own bodies. We need to be doing with our wives. So husbands, your love needs to be, your love needs to be sacrificial. It needs to be purifying. It needs to be caring. And number four, it needs to be unbreakable. Unbreakable. You see, in verse 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. One flesh. Cleave comes from the word proskaleo, which means to be glued together. There's so many people that live in the world today who think that their marriage is easily breakable, that we could just pull each other apart. And what the Bible is saying is here, you're glued together like cement. It's not easily breakable. That's why Malachi 2.16 says, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. God always hated divorce. And he will continue to do so. Why? Because it's something... It destroys that which he ordained to be unbreakable. Unbreakable. As we grow up, we're separate lives. Daughters, sons. But when we come together, we become one flesh. It's unbreakable. So husbands, are you doing everything in your power to make sure that your love is unbreakable? Because Christ set that model. That's why John Piper said that the ultimate meaning of marriage is to resent the represent the unbreakable covenant love between Christ and his church, then no human being has a right to break a marriage covenant. When the impossible day comes that Christ breaks his own vow, 
I am with you always to the end of the age, Matthew 28, then on that day a human being may break his marriage covenant. We are one flesh. And it looks so easy to say, you know what, it's just so it's easier to get a divorce. I heard that over and over and over again in my office. It's just easier. No, it's not. If we just live selflessly, submitting to one another, then all our marriages would be wonderful, ideal, the way God set them up to be. So finally, what's the motive for loving for the husband? Verse 32 and 33, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also... Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. What's the mystery here? The mystery is that which the people in the Old Covenant could never understand. See, Christ came and died, so now we understand the perfect model of love. Husband's greatest motive for loving, purifying, protecting, and caring for his wife is how Christ loved, purified, protected, and cared for his church. So my question for you, husbands and men in the room, Is the manner of your love right? Are you loving your wives in a sacrificial, purifying, caring, and unbreakable way? And as I ask the women, men, are you communicating to your wives, is your your communication evidence of that? That you have a love like Christ loved the church? Are you communicating to them Is your actions where your heart is? Church, we so desire to have you to have wonderful marriages, and we can. We can have ideal marriages the way God set them up to be. But we have to look to Him, to His example of how to do that, how to submit to one another. I leave you with C.S. Lewis's quote, who sums up this entire message so perfectly. When he says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Let's pray. God, thanks for today. Father, we praise your name for us. The fact that you set up marriages perfectly. Father, I pray that as we hear this message that we can get back to the basics of how a marriage is meant to be. Father, as we look to you as our example, And Father, as we come to the communion table, we remember that you died for us, that selfless act for us. Father, help us to be selfless in our marriages as well. In your name.